18 as we continue to walk through our sermon series on the the book of Acts, and um, I don't know what to do with myself. This is two Sundays in a row I get to preach, and uh, this one wasn't even planned before last week, um, but uh, uh, I was able to step in for Corey. Corey and several others were able to go to seminary class this week, and we're so excited about what they've been uh, encouraged with and how they're being trained, and uh, it gives me an opportunity to preach again, and I get to preach next week too, so um, they better be careful or they'll never get it back. Acts 18 verses 1 through 23, our world is in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We should amen that. The population of our world has now grown, according to those who keep up with these statistics, to be 7.84 billion people. And there are 10,548 people groups in our world. Joshua Project tells us that 4,588 of these people groups, 3.23 billion people, are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me define that for you. That means as far as we know, there is not, and in many of these groups has never been, a visible church of the living God. And at this moment in our world, there is no engagement with these groups actively where the gospel is being preached to them. 3.23 billion people out of 7.84 billion people, 4,588 of 10,548 people groups completely and utterly in the darkness as I stand before you preaching. This accounts only for the groups of people who are unreached without consideration for the millions that are unreached within the reached groups, like the United States. May I say to you again, the world is in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace Fellowship, we have been called to take the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the world, to the lost among us. This week I was studying this passage. And my mind was filled with these lyrics. And I just began, I'm thankful it was Friday and nobody was here but me. Because I just started to sing these words. All the poor and powerless. And all the lost and lonely. And all the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy. And know that you are holy. And all will sing out, Alleluia. And we will cry out, Hallelujah. This song goes on to say, go on, you know the words, and scream it from the mountain. Go on and tell it to the masses, for He is God. Church, that song is so true. 
we need to feel urgency. We need to be screaming it from the mountains and telling it to the world that our God is God. And His name is Jesus Christ. Do we even owe this kind of urgency about this mission that we're called to join in spreading the truth of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul knew this kind of urgency. Listen to these stats. <laughs> Paul carried the good news, according to Tom Schreiner, I think the foremost expert on the ministry of Paul in our day. Paul carried the good news, the whole counsel of God, across 2,000 miles in his first two missionary journeys. Now, 2,000 miles in a jet, no problem. We got so-called preachers in our day that claim they can't preach the gospel unless they own a G6. Total foolishness. Most of these 2,000 miles, think of the distance. From here past Thermopolis, Wyoming, 1,878 miles from my driveway, the Apostle Paul walked, he walked to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who were unreached in his day. And he didn't just walk across these taking in the sights and enjoying the smells and eating the food. No. This nearly 50-year-old man walked 2,000 miles preaching the gospel among the unreached of his world, and he faced persecution, ridicule, rejection, deprivation of all kinds because he was driven to proclaim the name of Jesus among those who had not heard that name named. He went to the world with the message. I want to look back for a moment at the passage from last week. And if we look back, and, and then I want us to look at our passage. And I want us to think about being on mission with Jesus. I don't know very many of us that, if we were honest, would define ourselves as on mission. But I hope that after today's message you will start to see yourself as on mission with Jesus in this lost world. Last week, Paul had left Berea in chapter 17 because the Jews from Thessalonica came down raising up, a, stirring up the people against his ministry. And the fact is that Paul had seen conversions and a small church had been built there in Berea among the believers. And so to take the heat off the local congregation, the rabble-rousers had come for Paul, so Paul left. Not because he was afraid, I don't think, but because he wanted the work to prosper. And so if he stayed, it's like a lightning rod for all this persecution. But if he leaves, then these Jews might just possibly let alone the people that have just been converted. So he leaves. And he's taken to Athens by the brothers, it says. And he sent Silas and Timothy back to Macedonia, to the great churches of Macedonia that had been planted to strengthen the churches and in that region. And then they were going to join him. When Paul reaches Athens on being leaving Berea in chapter 17, and he shows up in Athens, 
he's presented with an intellectual powerhouse. This is the seat of learning in the ancient world. And as men with great imaginations who have rejected God always do, according to Romans 1, these brilliant people had created for themselves many gods, a pantheon of gods. As Paul walked among these statues and rubbed shoulders with these lost people, his spirit was, according to the word of God in verse 16 of chapter 17, provoked. It was provoked. We talked about that last week, the provoking of his spirit. Remember, last week I said that this was not only because of the fact that he was angered righteously at the idolatry that surrounded him, but he was also broken and stirred by the holiness of God. To be, that it needed to be proclaimed. The holiness of God needed to be proclaimed in Athens among these idolaters. He knew that these Athenians were going to hell. And it has caused him to have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them in the synagogue first. Jews first and then the Greeks. This was his normal way of doing ministry. In the marketplace. And finally he's carried by the Athenians up on the high hill at Mars Hill to speak to the equivalent of our city council, to have his message approved of by the seniors of the city, the most learned men of his day. What does it mean when the Bible says he was provoked? That word's continued to just uh, stir in my mind and my heart. Well, this same word is used in the Old Covenant scriptures to talk about God's spirit against idolatry, the wrath of God. That's, that's how this word's used in the Old Testament. But it's used also in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Speaking about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to read that passage to you. Because I think it will help us better understand what's happening to Paul as he is there in Athens on the streets and in the synagogue and on Mars Hill. Listen to, listen to what the Word of God says. 2 Peter Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, for context. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and commanded, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I'm going to stop right there and just say to you, if you're without Christ today, and you have any doubt of what will happen to you if you die, God's exhibit A to you is Sodom and Gomorrah. He rained down brimstone and fire until it was turned to salt. It's an uninhabited place. To this day, there is no Sodom and Gomorrah. It is a minuscule picture of the eternal torment due to the ungodly. If you sit here today without Christ, I want to tell you, your future is not only troubled or sad but your future is terrifying 
For God will not, will not take it easy on those who have rejected his son. If he willingly crushed Sodom and Gomorrah for rejecting the witness of the gospel in their day from Abraham and Lot, what do you think he will do to those who reject his son directly? Back to the passage. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, here's our word, tormenting his soul. Same word, provoked, in Acts 17. Paul's soul was tormented by the ungodliness he saw. Tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, listen to the rest of the passage, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So Lot was tormenting his soul because of the lawless deeds in the culture around him. He was tormented. The connection here is that Paul is tormented or provoked because of the idolatry, idolatry, sexual immorality, and godliness, godlessness of the people around him. One of the reasons it affects him so much is because he loves, he loves the holiness of God. Those two aren't often connected. Like we t- typically talk about fearing the holiness of God. And it's right to say that. But I believe Paul loved the holiness of God. And he knows that because of the holiness of God, the wrath of God will come on Athens and Corinth and all the the godless of the world. Sin is no small thing, in other words. Sin is treason. Sin is treason against the king of heaven and earth. If you think January 6th was an act of treason against the United States government that should be punished, how much more so should treason against the holy God be punished? God is right in his punishment. God is just in his punishment. God is good to destroy all who stand against him. He can do no less, and it tormented the soul of the apostles. To see these people, to rub shoulders with them, to smell the idolatrous sacrifices, to look at the idolatrous prostitutes, and to see this godless horde of people before him broke his heart, provoked his spirit. He was tormented by the sin of the people. And the question I have for us, Grace Fellowship, is are we... Are are we not tormented in this way? Listen, we should be provoked and tormented by the sin of the people we live among. But instead of driving us away from them, it should drive us to them in urgency in mission. That's the first thing we're going to see in our passage today. I want to read it for you. 
quickly, and then I want to bring you uh, what I believe God is saying to us loud and clear. Verse 8, the chapter 18, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, (laughs) testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And then they opposed and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, One night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of them. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he declined. But on taking leave, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul has completed his second missionary journey. He's gone back to his sending church. He's made his report. He's even strengthened the churches in in Galatia and Phrygia by the end of our passage. We're going to camp out in Corinth for for today. I want us to see the urgency in the mission. I want to say we are a part of the same mission the Apostle Paul was a part of. That mission is given to us by Jesus Christ himself. In the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you, for lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. 
He's with us in this mission. Therefore, the title, On Mission with Jesus. This is not a man-made mission. This is not people finding things to be doing in this time. Jesus said go. So go we must. And it's not just to the, the, the 11. It's to Paul later and then through them to the, the elders and the churches of the New Testament and from their witness to us today. The same mission that we're all to be on. Notice in our text this morning that Paul left Athens and arrived in Corinth in verse 1. Corinth is a cosmopolitan city in this time. It was a city with deep history, but it had been totally destroyed by the Romans in 44 B.C. because of an insurrection that was started there. Rome's way was to try to come in and make peace with the locals to basically bring Caesar's word of peace, to say to them as heralds of Caesar's good news, listen. You can bow the knee to the crown, pay your taxes, keep your mouth shut, don't start wars or insurrections or problems. And you can live a basically normal life here. We won't bother you. We'll set up a governor, he'll collect your taxes, we'll even give you protection, we'll draft some of your men to our army, but other than that, you can live your life. But if you refuse, the greatest, power, most powerful army in the world at this time will come down on your head and we will crush you. We will not only crush you, but we'll feed your flesh to your babies and we'll burn your city to the ground. Diplomacy in the ancient world. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Often cities sent messengers to meet the messengers. We submit... You don't even have to tell us. We'll take the terms, whatever they are. Tell Caesar we're loyal subjects. We'll pay our taxes. We're good. But after a while, the human spirit has a way of making people uneasy about their submission. And then an insurrection rises. And in that insurrection, Rome puts the boot heel on the throat. It happened to Corinth in 44 B.C. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt this great city. <laughs> Every building surrounding the Apostle Paul was about 100 years old. In the ancient world and in places in our world today, that's a very, very young place. It led to rebuilding because it was strategic for commerce. You know, not just our world, don't let anybody fool you, not just our world's big on commerce. The world's always been big on commerce. People want to make a living. <laughs> and Rome was no different. And so here at this intersection of the trade routes, north and south and east and west, we find a cosmopolitan city filled with all kinds of people. It sat on the southern end of the isthmus, a narrow land bridge about three and a half miles wide that connected the Peloponnese Peninsula with the mainland of Greece to the north. Ships were dragged across this city from one sea to the other, so trade could flow freely from Rome to the east and from the east to Rome. It was a magnificent city. It boasted somewhere estimated in the middle, I take the middle estimate, about 500,000 people. It was a big city in its day. It was famous for many things, most of all sexual sin. It was the home of the largest temple to Athena, the goddess of love in the Greek world. You might say it was the Las Vegas of its day, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. 
there were 10,000 temple prostitutes who worked the streets and worked the temple. And the city was full of sailors. Need I say more? Sailors and prostitutes by the hordes. As a matter of fact, if someone in this time called you a Corinthian and you weren't from Corinth, it was not a compliment. It was very common, but it wasn't a compliment. Tim Keller says this, Athens was like Boston, an intellectual city. Corinth was like New York City, a commercial center. Ephesus was like Los Angeles, a popular culture and occult center. Rome was like Washington, D.C. It was the political center. So we're dealing with the New York City, or in my phrase, the Las Vegas. Maybe combine the two. Boy, that's a, that's a weird marriage, isn't it? So Paul finds himself leaving Athens and landing in Corinth, surrounded by wealth, trade, a relatively new city, and it's known for its sexual perverseness. What does Paul do? Paul proclaims the whole counsel of God centered on the cross of Jesus Christ with urgency. With urgency. He doesn't start a political action committee or start a tolerance movement or even try and end sex slave trade of his day. Paul doesn't get trapped in any of the problems he rather addresses the core of the problem. They need Jesus. Too much energy is spent in the church today. I'm just going to say this very loudly so you can hear it. Too much energy. Some of you attend churches and you're visiting with us. And if I'm talking about your church, I'm sorry that I offend you, but I'm going to offend you. Too much energy in the evangelical church in our day is expended on every cause outside of the gospel. We think we're going to solve the problems of the world. Our spirits are provoked about the wrong things. Or can I say it better? Our spirits are provoked about the surface problems. But not provoked, I don't think, the way Paul's was because of the deep sin of our culture and the greatness of the holiness of God and the coming of his wrath. Because if we were provoked by that, we'd leave off a lot of our political movements and a lot of our other good movements where we find common ground with lost people. One, one thing you can do, if most of your time and energy and money and resources are spent on causes that lost people join you in, you've lost it. If, that, if the lost world is amening you all the time, you've gone astray. The Apostle Paul looked through the culture and he saw the rotten core. And he proclaimed Christ and him crucified. And Grace Fellowship, if we want to, be one of Christ's heralds in our day, we need to do the same thing. So many of us will spend our waking hours in torment over surface-level sin and never going beyond it to understand that that is only a fruit of a dark, sinful heart, and that person will go to hell. 
You can rescue them from all manner of things. Not preach to them the gospel and they will be a cleaner version of themselves headed for hell. Is that clear? You're looking rather shocked, some of you. Like, this is 2021, you got to get with it. No? I, maybe it's my obstinance. I have that nature, believe it or not. But the more the evangelical church pushes toward this other thing, the more I dig my heels in and say, no, no. Oh, yeah, I'm offended by abortion deeply, and I'm offended by sex slave trade. 44 million sex slaves in our day at least. I'm offended by that. I'm offended by the orphans being left as orphans. I'm offended by all kinds of things. But what I find myself more and more offended in a godly way, I think, about is the lack of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what did Paul do faced with all these same dilemmas? He went to the core. And he preached Christ crucified. At the beginning of his time in Corinth, he joins up with a Jewish Christian couple from Rome named Aquila and Priscilla because they shared a trade in tent making. Paul was underfunded at this point in his ministry. But rather than seeing it as a roadblock, he follows the rabbinic tradition of the Jews and works all week and preaches the gospel in the synagogues on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, Paul reasoned and tried to persuade. That's why I'm talking about urgency. He persuaded people, Jew and Greek, to believe. He wasn't just having an academic conversation or talking about the commentary of the Old Covenant. He was speaking about the Old Covenant with power. And speaking about Jesus Christ crucified and calling for response, pleading with them, persuading them. The urgency of the message of the gospel drove Paul to bivocationally preach to all who would listen, and he called them to believe and be saved. This is where we get the modern term tent maker from in the mission world when we talk about their tent makers. Or in a bivocational preaching, we often call him that. My granddad was a bivocational ministry a lot of his time. He was a tent maker, we might say. And it leads me to ask this question in the beginning of this text. What are you willing to do so that you can be on mission with Jesus? You know, Apostle Paul didn't walk into Corinth and go, you know, I don't have enough money. I think I'll just complain about it. I'll drink my latte at the local coffee shop and talk about all the people who aren't supporting my ministry. No, he found Aquila and Priscilla, these Jews who had been run out of Rome by Claudius in 49 A.D., and they showed up in Corinth, and he found them, and he started talking with them, and they had a commonality in both Christ and tent making, and he said, y'all looking for a worker? I'll work. He went to work with his hands. In 1 Corinthians, he says, don't you know that I preach the gospel among you without asking for a dime of your money? I supported my own ministry, even though I had a right to take from you. I didn't take from you, lest you take some gloating, boasting prominence in my ministry saying that you were the reason Paul was able to preach the gospel. No, Jesus sent me, and I worked hard among you, and I provided for myself, and I preached the gospel day and night, day and night. To, he worried himself to toil over 
the problem he saw in the world. The problem and the reason we're not urgent, I think, one of them is that our spirits are not provoked by the ungodliness around us nor the holiness of God. We don't truly believe that Jesus could come at any moment and bring with him the angels to act out the wrath of God on those around us. And so we sit at ease waiting on God to do something. And he has called us to do something. Join him in the mission. So much of our time is spent rearranging deck chairs on a Titanic that's sinking. What are we willing to do, church, to get the word to the lost? Paul was driven by the utter sinfulness of people, the sheer magnificence of the holiness and wrath of God, and the goodness of Jesus Christ to do whatever it took to get the mission done. And we should be just like him. We also see his urgency in the fact that even though he stays in Corinth with probably his most successful ministry in terms of new Christians to this point, he continues on in his journey in verse 18. Luke says he leaves and goes to Syria with his new ministry partners, Aquila and Priscilla. He goes to Ephesus. He leaves them there. He reasoned with them in the synagogue, but he refuses to stay even though they want him to. And notice what he says, if God wills. This urgency, if God wills for me to come back, I'll come back. But I don't have time. I'm moving on. And he moves on. He goes then to Caesarea and to the temple in Jerusalem and on into Antioch to report the news of his mission to the sending church. Paul was not interested in ease or comfort or even outward success. Paul was driven with urgency in the mission to give his very life to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to have this same urgency. But we can also take heart in this. There is security in this mission. <laughs> now, and this might seem strange to say about Paul because he faced so much persecution, rejection, but the truth is there is no security in life outside of the will of God. There is no security. No matter how comfortable you feel outside the will of God. Our world here in the United States is consumed with security. We seek financial, physical, even the marshmallows of our day, mental security. We've got to create safe spaces for folks. Above everything else, we seek security. It's an idol in our culture. We want to feel good and we want to be safe. If people of our day could see the ramps we constructed riding our huffy bikes with no knee pads or elbow guards or, believe it or not, we didn't even know what a helmet was. Helmets were for people that went like 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle. No kid in my neighborhood riding with a helmet. Are you kidding? Now, I'm not against helmets. And I'm not recommending you build unsafe things. But I use it as an example about the obsession we have with security. Do you know we have parents that will tell their children not to go to the mission field because it's not safe? Are you kidding me? Oh, you know, darling, somebody's got to go, but not you. You're very important. 
If God is calling you to the mission field, the most unsafe thing you can do is stay here. And the safest thing you can do is go face whatever is out there. Because he will never leave you. And he will not forsake you according to Deuteronomy and according to John and according to Revelation. And according to our text, he will not leave you. Paul understands that the only security he can ever enjoy is the security found in following the will of the Lord and being on mission with Jesus. Look at the text. Verse 1, he had safe travel to Corinth from Athens. In verse 2, he had new partners in the ministry, Aquila and Priscilla. God provided for his emotional and spiritual needs by giving him brothers. Nobody needs to be all alone. Adam couldn't make it in an unfallen world alone. We sure can't make it alone. God gave him partners. Verse 3, he received his partners, his old partners, Silas and Timothy. And with them came a great offering from the poor people in Macedonia to support Paul's ministry. We're told about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But in our text, we see it where it says in verse 5 that Silas and Timothy show up and then Paul is occupied. His occupation changed from tent maker to full-time evangelist and apostle because they showed up with money. And he loves those Macedonian Christians. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 8. Verse 9, talking about the security of God. God himself spoke to Paul. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. No more comforting word than from God. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. Jesus said, when you go to the nations, you preach the gospel, I'm with you. And now he's, Paul, he says to Paul right here, don't be afraid, son. Keep on proclaiming the gospel. I'm with you. This isn't Paul's mission. This is Jesus' mission. And Paul has joined him with urgency for this mission, and he feels security in the mission. No one will attack you to do you harm. <laughs> Don't you know Paul said, oh, no rods, no stones. I mean, this man's already been stoned. You know what they did when they stoned people? They, they put a cross over it. They were dead. Paul got stoned, and then... I don't know if it was miraculous or they just were lightweights at throwing stones in that place. I don't know. But they didn't kill him. He got out from under the rocks. The brothers were about to sing a hymn and pronounce his ashes to the ground. Paul got up. And what did he do? This wild man walked back in the city. Urgent on mission. Secure in mission. Paul feared no human because his knees had been bowed before the throne of heaven. He had received his commission. He could do nothing less than preach the gospel. God encourages him in a vision. And then in verses 12 through 17, he stands in front of Galileo, the son of Seneca, the brother of Seneca, the lesser, the greatest minds of the, of the Athenian world were this man's family. He had risen to prominence in Rome befriending the emperor himself, and he had gotten this appointment at Corinth and Achaia. He's the governor there. So we know Paul is there around 51, 52 A.D. because that's how long his stint as Galileo was in charge. So we know with assurance 
that Paul is there, and he's drugged before Galileo for preaching the truth. But look what happens in the text. The Jews make their case, and then Galileo, Paul, is about to take his stance. He, this is his way. You drag me in front of the officials, you charge me with preaching the truth, and he says, and by the way, let me preach the truth. I don't want to leave any doubt. I'm guilty. Here I am. Let me preach the truth. And before he could open his mouth by the providence of God, because he's secure, God is protecting him, Galileo says, hold up, bro. I could care less about this. This is a Jewish matter. If this man had committed some crime, treason against Caesar, any of those things, we would hear it. But the Romans could care less about him preaching the gospel. Why? Because they saw it as a schism in the Jewish world, as nothing more than talking about names and laws and how to apply it. And he said, I'm not going to hear the case. It's cast out. And Paul, I imagine his face like dropped, like, for real? This is huge. Because from this point until the end of his life, almost the end of his life, Paul's going to experience great freedom in preaching the gospel in the Roman world because he has the letter from Galileo to say, uh, 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 this has already been settled. I'm a Roman citizen, and here's what the governor says. God not only protected him in Corinth, but protected him in other places also from the Romans. Verses 18 through 23, again, he's traveling from Corinth, eventually all the way back to Antioch safe all the way in Galatia, in Phrygia, strengthening the brothers safely. This is no small accomplishment in the ancient world to travel all this way with no problem. Well, not to say no problem, but he got there alive. Security is found not in our plans for safety or in our comfort, but in Christ, church. So we have urgency and mission and security and mission, and finally we have the truth of the mission. Paul preached the whole counsel of God to the Corinthians and exhibit a in his own words let me read this first Corinthians verse 18 says for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart where is the one who is wise where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standard. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in Christ. What did he preach in Corinth? He preached the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He didn't get caught up in wise words of this world, strong, powerful systems of this world. He stayed with Jesus. 
He stayed with the gospel. He preached Christ and him crucified. And when I came, he says to you in Corinth, did not, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony. Or he says, did, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Listen, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, look at how he described himself, in weakness and in fear. Why did he need a vision to strengthen him? Because he was afraid. He was a human, just like we are. Why did he need strengthening from other people? Because he was weak, just like we are. And much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul delivered the glorious good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Corinth, and he delivered in that the full counsel of the fearfulness of the wrath of God that is coming against this world. And when he finished, we know that he had done all that needed to be done in preaching to them the gospel. Because look what he does when he stands in the synagogue, being opposed and reviled in verse 6. He says to them, we know he preached the whole gospel, the whole counsel, because of these words and because of this action. He stood and took his garment and shook it and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. Ezekiel 33. God called the prophet Ezekiel to go to the people as a watchman on the wall. And he said, you son of man, preach. You cry out as the watchman to the people and call them to me. If they hear you, then it will be good with them. But if they reject you and you have preached the whole counsel of God, their blood is on their heads. How do I know Paul preached the whole counsel of God? How do I know he preached nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because he tells us that in 1 Corinthians. And because right here we see historically recorded by Luke that he stood up and he shook the dust. This is a sign of judgment. He shook the dust off to the Jews. He said, you reject not me. You reject God and his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Your blood is on you. And he left. What effect did it have? What effect did it have? I believe we can see one, at least one effect. Crispus, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue, and his whole family were saved. Some of you hide from this message because you think it makes God look so harsh. And in this message is the power of God unto salvation. They ain't getting out of their worldly death trap for just anything. But oh, Christians, when we speak the words of both the wrath and holiness of God and the goodness, grace, and mercy of God in Jesus to the lost world. Those who belong to him in our city will believe in him and be saved. Grace Fellowship, I'm calling on you. More than that, I believe God is calling. And with the authority of his word, 
preach to you this morning. I challenge you that we be a church urgent on the mission, experiencing the security of God in doing what he has called us to do, proclaiming the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And while we do it, let our mouths and our heart and our mind be consumed with one message, the full counsel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our God will save his people out of a crooked and perverse generation by his power so that none of us may boast. And so that he may be glorified and lifted high. What I'm saying to you, Grace Fellowship, is that while we may have been, and I believe we are, on this mission, we will change for no one our mission. We will not bow the knee to the cultural tides of our day. And if you're looking for security in this world, I have nothing to offer you. I do believe we stand at the threshold of persecution. But fear not, for God is with us. We must go on preaching and proclaiming and telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Grace Fellowship, I'm calling you. If you've been proclaiming, to continue proclaiming. And if you've never proclaimed, to start proclaiming the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of God's wrath and holiness. I'm calling you. I'm pleading with you to do this in every place of business, every school, every neighborhood, every home that is represented in this place. So that when we are dead and gone, we leave a legacy of the glory of God in His Son, Jesus Christ, behind. And when they talk of us, and trust me, they do, and they will. When they talk of us, may they say, I don't really like those people. <laughs> One thing I know, they are urgent with this message. They are secure in the mission. They speak the truth unashamed. Grace Fellowship, this is what Jesus Christ calls us to do. So let us do it with great joy, great excitement, great zeal, great passion. If you don't know him, then I call you to bow your knee to him. Salvation is in his name alone. You must bow your knee which means you must give up your life. You must die to yourself. You must follow him. By believing and treasuring his name, you will be seen as a son of God, welcomed into his family, shepherded by his great hand until the day of judgment when you will stand with the righteous of God before his throne 
and you will be with him forever. So lost man, woman, child, I call you now to do this today. If you would don't, if you reject, then I join in the apostle's statement. Your blood is on your own hands. For I stand innocent of you. Let's pray, Father. We're going to take communion. We're going to close our service. But there are lost people in this room. I mean, there are those who pretend. They got everybody fooled. Themselves may be included, but I ask your spirit to move among us in this time of communion. And that you would bring them to yourself, your people, in this place. There are others who know they're lost and they came to this place in search of you and I pray God they found it. They found the truth of the gospel and they will believe. And there are others who are Christians, many who are Christians, and they're just comfortable in this world. I mean, they, they, it's okay to be here and they feel at home. I pray God you would stir and provoke them today. That they never again feel at home in this world. They never feel okay with the society in which they live in. But they always see themselves as pilgrims. And Father, I pray for those who are already on the pilgrim way. Those who are walking according to your word. Those who are calling out to their neighbors, friends, and family to come to know you as the Lord and Savior. I pray you would strengthen them now. Encourage them. Continue their ministry. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We come to our time of communion. We'll go ahead and ask the guys to come forward. Uh, and as they're coming forward, and before we pass out the elements, uh, I just wanted to ask a question or two for you. So by show of hands, how many of you came to church this morning with just a few things on your mind? There are three of us. Not by show of hands, and maybe a little more serious. How many of you came in this morning with something incredibly heavy on your mind, something that may consume you, so heavy you find yourself thinking about it all the time. You know, God knows us. We're his children. He knows that we can be consumed with the everyday things, and he certainly knows that we can be consumed by the not-so-everyday things. And because he knows us so well, he put this observance in place for us so we would stop, take a moment away from those things, and remember what's most important. Long ago, before even our great-grandparents were born, he established this time. Because he knew we would need reminding. That's what this time is for. Time for each of us to take our list of things that are occupying us and set them aside. And in their place, remember Christ. As his children, we are to remember Christ and his cross. The Lord's Supper is for believers to take part in as a vivid remembrance of the cross. And although the Bible tells us that the supper should not be taken by an unbeliever, sitting and watching without taking the elements does have a purpose for you as well. 
for unbelievers, the Lord's Supper is meant to be a vivid proclamation of the cross, as you've heard from this pulpit this morning. So whether you take the elements or not, use this time to put aside all that consumes you and think on the cross. Think on his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. To help focus us in, I want to ask you to do something. Take a few moments as they're passing out the elements here in a minute. Remember the gospel. It's really not that complicated. You lost it all. Because of sin, you and I lost any and all merit standing before a holy God.